Hello, everybody. So we're in uh, Numbers in chapter 9. If you'd like to find that, it's on page 146. Right, Uh, shall we pray before we begin? Father God, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for books like Numbers uh, that perhaps don't uh, spring to mind when we uh, think about uh, Christian devotion and uh, learning about you. And yet, Lord, you have so much to teach us through it. Lord, open our hearts and minds to hear your voice uh, through these words this evening. Amen. Well, sometimes it's not a good idea to know the future, is it? Uh, A lonely frog who was desperate to meet his princess uh, spoke to the magic mirror one evening and said, uh, and asked uh, the mirror, what does the future hold? And he was told, you're going to meet a beautiful young girl who wants to know everything about you. The frog gets so excited and asks, where am I going to meet this young girl? And the magic mirror replies, in her biology class. The future can be a very scary place sometimes. And yet, all humans, as well as frogs, are thirsty for glimpses of what the future might hold. Whether it's guidance about decisions uh, and what's going to work out best, or advance warnings about bad situations that might arise. And as Christians, we do know that God uh, promises to guide us. He offers guidance. He's a God who gets involved and stuck in uh, with our lives. So it's right that we seek guidance on all manner of questions. Um, In a sense, we keep asking these questions, don't we? What college or university should I apply to? What career should I follow? Where where should I live? Who should I marry? When should I get married? What should I do in my gap year? And there's so many other important questions in our lives. And we feel uh, that they are important and that God believes they're important too. And God is interested in them too. But actually that can lead us to have this sort of nagging worry. It actually sometimes makes it harder for us to make a decision in our life because the stakes appear to be so high. What happens if we get it wrong? Does that mean that we step outside of God's will for our life? Does that mean we have to accept God's second best uh, for our life? Sometimes people uh, talk about hearing that still, small voice, don't they? Which gives them a strong feeling about something, a peace maybe. But sometimes we don't hear that voice. And then God perhaps seems a little bit cold, a little bit silent to us. Or perhaps we discover down the line that that still voice was actually our own voice speaking to us after the desires of our own heart. Some of us talking about seeking God's guidance as though God were hiding somewhere as we desperately go seeking for him. Sometimes as if uh, we picture God's guidance uh, as, a, as though he quickly flashes a road map in front of our eyes. But if we blink, we miss it because he, he takes it away very quickly. We have to uh, be on the ball. And if we make a decision which we believe to be right and then it turns out to go horribly wrong, then what do we start to believe about God? Well, we begin to believe, uh, well, you know, is he playing cruel jokes on us? Is he deliberately making us suffer? Or if we don't doubt God, then maybe we doubt ourselves. We think to ourselves, after all these years of being a Christian, how is it that I can still not discover God's will for my life? 
So frankly, sometimes when we talk about guidance, we get into the right mess. And, and, and I look back in horror with some of the sort of talks I've previously done on guidance and things like that, and, and I still haven't got my head around the subject, or still hadn't got the head around the subject. But numbers nine, I think, does open up some useful pointers for us, and it helps to kind of shape our expectations of how God guides us today. It doesn't give us all the answers. It's not a complete guide to God guiding us today, but it gives us some, of, um, some useful pointers So firstly, my first point is, on God's guidance, we walk in the presence of God. So if you were here last week, you'll remember that the Israelites were nearing the end of their preparations uh, to begin their 40-year march, what turned out to be their 40-year march to the Promised Land. And I talked about the Nazarites, who were there to act as kind of visible signposts to them, pointing to the desert being a place of training, Uh, that God was their head by their long hair, and they were um, heading to a time and a place where death would mean nothing to them. But an even greater visible sign that the Israelites were going to take with them was the tabernacle, or the tent of testimony, as it's called here in Numbers 9 and verse 15. So you see, shortly after the first Passover, God met Moses in a cloud on a mountain, didn't he? Uh, And the people had been redeemed from slavery in Egypt. Once more, they were under God's rule. And that's why they could enjoy God's presence again, even if it was in the cloud on top of the mountain. Because the purpose of redeeming them from Egypt was to enjoy relationship with them. God wanted to be present with them. But meeting on a mountain is not very handy if you want to go on a long journey. So in God's grace and mercy, he, he gives them the instructions to build this tabernacle, a tent, that testifies to his presence among them. And the tabernacle, if we can go on to the next slide, had a courtyard around it, which isn't uh, shown here, uh, and a tent inside, which is separated into two sections. So it had the holy place and the most holy place, all the holy holies. Inside the holy place is a table that holds the bread of the presence, which was 12 loaves of bread. And it reminded the Israelites that God will provide for all their needs. Alongside that is a golden lampstand. It's gone over the, uh, go over the edge a little bit there. Uh, which symbolizes God's constant watch over them. Uh, it keeps them from harm. And then there's the altar of incenses, which is intended to give a sense of the nearness of God. And then there's the curtain or veil, which screens the entrance to the most holy place. And there's just one piece of furniture inside that, which is the ark. And the ark is a chest that's about 130 centimetres long, 60 centimetres wide and high. Inside are the stone tablets, which uh, God has inscribed with the Ten Commandments. And it has a lid, which is called the mercy seat, or the atonement cover. And at either ends of that lid are, are cherubs. And they have wings that extend horizontally over the, tub- over the cover. And those form the throne of the invisible gods. And God tells Moses in Exodus 25, he says, There above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, I will meet with you. So if the table there speaks of God's provision, the lamp speaks of God's protection, and the ark speaks of God's presence, his throne. So here they are now, a year after leaving Egypt, and the Israelites have finished the tabernacle and celebrated the Passover for the second time. And just as God appeared in the cloud to show them the way out of Egypt before, God's glory now fills the tabernacle. 
And the Israelites know that their obedience has been rewarded with God's presence. And we see that in verse 15. On the day the tabernacle, the tent of testimony, was set up, the cloud covered it. From evening till morning, the cloud above the tabernacle looked like fire. That is how it continued to be. The cloud covered it, and at night it looked like fire. And we think, wow, wouldn't that be great? In fact, some Christian traditions try to recreate, recreate that presence of God, don't they, by swinging incense around. Now, I've seen the big uh, incense burner thing at Santiago de Compostela. Have you seen that? If you haven't seen it in real life, you might have seen it on television. It's a huge thing that swings from one transept to the cathedral through to the other transept to the cathedral with about ten verges hanging off a rope at the other end, getting dragged into the air as the, as the incense burner goes over the other side, which gives me a new idea for Steve Ruby, actually. Um, <laughs> And this thing is just amazing. It is so scary. It is so big. It's downright dangerous. But it's clearly not the presence of God. But these Israelites, they had the real McCoy. They had the real McCoy hanging over the tabernacle. And we think it was so simple for them, wasn't it? I mean, you couldn't miss this cloud. And the fire at the night must have been quite eye-catching as well. In terms of guidance, as we see from verse 17 onwards, it was quite easy for them. Whenever the cloud lifted from above the tent, the Israelites set out. Whenever the cloud settled, the Israelites encamped. We'd like a nice cloud, wouldn't we? Without a cloud, we feel a bit second class, a little bit left out. I mean, they had this dirty great big cloud for everyone to see right there in front of them, a tangible expression of God's presence with them, a perfect divine guidance. But we have nothing like that, do we? I mean, at various times in history, God has provided these visible signs to people. A rainbow in the sky, a flaming bush in the desert, or a fleece that stays dry where everything around it is wet. And we want an equally handy guidance device. They walked by sight. We want to walk by sight too. We're a bit fed up with walking by faith. It's too difficult. But we forget three things. We forget these three things. Firstly... We have a sign too. And our sign is much bigger and better than they ever had. You see, instead of a cloud to follow or a rainbow or a burning bush, we have Christ. Our sign is a person. He is incarnated, crucified, and resurrected Christ. In Mark 9, the gospel reading, God appears to the disciples in the cloud and says, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Do you see? Here's my sign. Forget the cloud. Forget the rainbow. Here's my sign. Follow him. It's so simple, really. You see, if we can realize that God's overriding concern for us is to save us and for us to, and to make us more like Jesus. I mean, it releases us from all that other worry in our life. Have we missed God's plan for our life? Have we missed out on the best marriage partner or the best career? The reality of our sign is so much better, so much clearer. God just wants us to be like Jesus. And secondly, all these uh, Old Testament tangible signs of God's presence only ever had meaning once they'd been explained. You see, they didn't follow the cloud based on some kind of hunch. Well, I don't know what it is, but it's big, so we better follow it. Let's see what it's up to. No, there was a word that went with it. Moses gives them their instructions, and and that's what we have. And we had it in Exodus, but here we have it again in verses 17 to 23. Their instructions are stated, then they're restated and restated and restated and restated and restated one more time, just in case in those verses we didn't understand it the first time. 
So Noah drew comfort from his rainbow because the promise it represented was explained to him by God. And Moses took instruction from the burning bush because God explained that he was standing on holy grounds. And we find significance in the life, birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ because of what the Bible teaches us about him. So don't just follow Christ on a hunch. We have the Bible, the Word, that teaches us again and again what Jesus came to do and what it means to follow him with our lives. Which is why it's so important that we make this habit of studying the Word and listening to it preached. And thirdly, we see that God's guidance is not an individual thing. I mean, these days we would think uh, the cloud didn't have to be so big, it's a bit clumsy, isn't it? A bit unwieldy, didn't have to be so public. I mean, Sony could, tell us, uh, could sell us some personal clouds of God's presence, couldn't it? And as time goes on, of course, they get smaller and smaller to make them easier to carry in our pockets, and we'd end up with personal puffs or wisps of God's presence. Or perhaps we'd have the latest personal smoke tablets. But that's not how guidance works. Because we follow God and understand the word together as a family of God. God desires to make each and every one of us and to bring us to a place where we can enjoy his presence forever as the bride of Christ, as the church of Christ together. And oftentimes we just get caught up on our own little agenda, don't we? God's very specific will for little old me and what I want to achieve in life and how God might be able to help me out with my plans. And we forget that God's agenda is what he wants to achieve in my life and through us as God's people, together. You see, we become so obsessive about guidance that, that actually God has never really promised to give us, that we're in danger of overlooking the guidance that he has promised to give us, that he has given to us in his word, in Christ, in his word, and through the church, through wise Christians. So if the decisions I make before God demonstrate obedience to Christ and obedience to his word, and accords with wise counsel that we can find in the church, then they're probably going to be right. On the other hand, if I'm determined to do something that is contrary to that, to marry a non-Christian, sleep with somebody before marriage, take a job that's going to take me into difficult, uh, uh, questionable, ethical areas, then such decisions are not going to make me like Christ. They're not going to prepare me for heaven. And no matter how much I try to convince myself that they will, they're probably not going to be the right decisions, are they? We learn as parents that a happy, well-behaved child is a child with a broad framework of boundaries. That way they don't have to try and second-guess what their parents are going to approve of. They know what's expected. And within that broad framework, they can find plenty of opportunities to express their creativity and sense of fun and emotions. And that security of having that framework is liberating for them. And it's the same for us. With God's guidance framework, it can be liberating for us. We can discover a whole range of options that are within God's will. And we can feel released from that dread fear of ending up with second best. Okay, that was my first point. Uh, More quickly, we'll go on to my second. So we walk in the presence of God, and he's given us a great sign to follow. My second point is this. We must be ready to move. So you got the picture by now. Whenever the cloud lifted from above the tent, the Israelites set out. They had to be in a permanent state of watchfulness. Whether it was day or night, somebody in the camp would always have an eye out on that cloud. Let's see the second half of verse 21. Whether by day or night, whenever the cloud lifted, they set out. 
Now just imagine how difficult this might have been. We've already seen the large numbers involved. Imagine having to strike a camp for that number of people at the drop of a hat or the lift of a cloud. Pack everything away, put the fires out, clear up the mess, uh, pick up the baked bean tents, uh, pay the campsite fees, return the gas bottle. I mean, over the years, they might have got quite good at it, like a finely tuned travelling circus, but it can't have been that easy, can it? And frankly, there must have been times when they were just exhausted. Or they liked where they were staying so much that they simply didn't want to move on. This week, I'm conducting the funeral of an 89-year-old lady who, who has lived in the same house all of her life, 89 years. And her mother lived there before her, and her grandmother as well, I think. And we have friends who are always complaining about the number of spaces that we use up in their dress book because of the number of houses that we've lived in. And we were reflecting this week that if we were to have a lifting cloud experience in our lives, and it would probably be something like Sylvia taking on private Spanish classes. I mean, every time we've lived somewhere, as soon as Sylvia starts to get Spanish classes to give, you know, to, give to other people, uh, then it's time to move on. It happened in our last year in Essex, our, and then our last year in Cambridge, and our last year in Oxford, and, and now she's just taken on two classes and been offered more this week, so it's clearly time for us to move on. <laughs> Goodbye. But that doesn't actually mean that we should continue to be looking for some kind of sign like this cloud or Spanish classes, as though we were like that film in Chocolat, you know, the Vianne Rocher, the, the chocolatier there, who was always listening out for the clever north wind to speak to her of towns yet to be visited, friends in need yet to be discovered, battles yet to be fought, and to whisk her way to another place. We don't have to be like that. We need to be careful how we apply this to our lives. You see, Israel, we're moving from slavery in Egypt to the promised land. And that's a picture of our own spiritual journey. From the day we first put our trust in Christ, when he first redeemed us from the slavery to living our lives for ourselves, and we began to experience the presence of God with us through the Holy Spirit, to the day when we finally enter our promised rest in heaven. And in a sense, our Christian life is is like a series of deaths before arriving at heaven, the final death to our own earthly body. At first we die to self when we accept Jesus as Lord and Saviour, and we go on dying in many smaller ways. We feel challenged about behaviour or attitudes in our lives which don't bring glory to God. And at each of these moments, I think we have to be ready to move. We have to be ready to say to God, look, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to think that anymore. I don't want to find myself in this situation anymore because it's harming my relationship with you. God, I'm ready to move. You see, sometimes, you know, we've been released from slavery once and yet we get captured by it again. We get captured by a lovely campsite or or something that appears to give us short-term pleasure. Or we get captured simply by our own exhaustion and we want something that's going to give us temporary rest. And yet God gives us a tug. You see, he loves us too much to leave us behind. He says, come on, it's time to move on. It's time to be captivated again by that better vision. You see, we need to remember that where we are now is deserts. It may be better than the desert over there, but it's still deserts. But God shows us a better vision, a vision of that final destination which he's preparing us for our final eternal rest, enjoying his presence forever in heaven. And he says, come on, let's go. 
It's time to move on. So are we ready for that? Are we ready to die those little deaths in our life as we move on the road to heaven? But there's a flip side as well, isn't there? And this is my third point, I think. Because sometimes we have to be ready to wait. So verse 22. Whether the clouds stayed over the tabernacle for two days or a month or a year, the Israelites would remain in camp and not set out. But when it lifted, they would set out. In our family, Alex, my oldest boy, wants to stay where he is. He wants to carry on going to CNS and be with his new friends. Meanwhile, my daughter Miriam is desperate to go on an adventure. She wants to change schools, meet new people, and go as far away from Norwich as she possibly can. Sometimes waiting is harder than moving on. It is for Miriam. We all know how frustrating it can be to be stuck in that traffic jam or have to wait for somebody to turn up. These guys were waiting for 40 years to get to their destination. And yet they would stop and they would start. They'd turn left and right. Sometimes they'd probably go back on themselves. A lot of the time they would just be waiting. The weather would be good. The people would be in good health. There'd be no reason why not to set out. And they'd just have to wait and try to scrape a living there and there in the, in the desert. Even if they could see the River Jordan in sight. If the clouds settled, they would have to wait. They would have to be obedient and trust God completely. And there was no explanation Moses didn't come over the uh, intercom, apologize for delay, and estimate the time it would take to obtain clearance from control cloud. They simply had to trust God. And each of us knows these times of frustration, when we long for movement and nothing happens, when we long for change or relief from difficult circumstances, and suddenly nothing happens. Perhaps we long for growth in our spiritual life. And remember, when we were excited about following Jesus, but now, well, it's just disappointment. Perhaps you've been waiting for answers to prayer or response in other people. Perhaps you're looking for relief from your own sin or negative emotions. Why do I have to stay here? Why do I have to stay in this place? And yet sometimes we're called to wait, to live by faith and trust. And here's my last point. Sometimes we have to be ready not to know. So verse 23 at the Lord's command, they encamped, and at the Lord's command, they set out. They obeyed the Lord's order in, com- in accordance with his command through Moses. So sometimes we just don't know. And yet we still have to obey the Lord's command and trust him. See, perhaps we can see 20 miles across the desert, but the Lord can see 40, 50, or 100 miles. He can see the danger that's lurking there. He can see where a day's delay will keep us safe, or a swerve to the left will bring us into much blessing. But he never gives us this complete travel itinerary. Somebody put it like this. He does not tell them the nature of the journey that lies ahead of them, or reveal the mileposts or the stage markers. He assures them only the final outcome, the destination, and what they are to do today. And that probably reflects very well the nature of normal Christian guidance. You see, all of the big questions that we tend to ask, what course should I do, who should I marry, what career should I follow... In a sense, are just questions of our itinerary. They're the things that we do on our way to our destination. And sometimes you have to be ready never to know the answer to these things. But one thing we do know, and that is where we are headed. We're headed to the promised land. Our final destination is heaven. 
See, once the people crossed the Red Sea, Moses sang in the song, in your unfailing love, he said, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. And on the final day, Jesus, we know, is going to boast that he didn't lose anyone on the way, not a single one, because God ensures that we will be ready to be the bride of Christ, every single one of us. And in the meantime, we just have to follow those daily orders, the daily orders to follow Christ, to seriously apply the Bible to our lives, and to learn from the wise counsel of other Christians. And we'll get there in the end. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your promise to guide us. We thank you for your promise to guide us uh, towards your holy dwelling, a place where we may dwell with you, where we may enjoy your presence forever. Lord, whatever issues or problems uh, or, or doubts or uncertainties we're facing in our lives, may we truly know your presence with us. May we follow our daily orders May we try to be like Christ. May we read your words and may we delight in what we read. In the name of Christ, amen.